0: we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Daniel. This morning we find ourselves in chapter 10. We're going to be looking at the entire uh, chapter. So if you will turn to chapter 10. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone would love to bring you a Bible. I'm uh, not a big boxing fan, but... uh, I was reminded this week that in 1974, boxing legend Muhammad Ali fought George Foreman, which was, I think it was called even before the fight, the Rumble in the Jungle. Some of you know, it's a very famous match. While Muhammad Ali was getting older, he was getting slower, and he came into that fight as a four-to-one underdog against George Foreman, who was the heavyweight champion of the world, and he packed a huge punch. And so the match began. I mean, Foreman came out throwing haymakers, throwing punches. He wasn't playing around, and for round after round, it looked like Ali was just getting killed in the ring. Body shot after body shot from all apparent purposes, even the people who gathered to watch this fight, even the commentators were saying, Ali's getting killed out there. But looks can be deceiving, can't they? Ali had a plan. Very few people actually knew the plan, but he had a plan. There was an inner circle, and his trainer had a plan in order to figure out how he could defeat George Foreman. And George Foreman, he didn't see it coming. Finally, it was too late. We live in a a world where appearances can be deceiving. What looks like losing can actually, in the end, be winning. This morning, we have another vision. Daniel has a sort of uh, vision after vision. And if you take uh, from chapter 7 to chapter 12, there's actually four visions. Chapter 10, 11, and 12 is just one vision. And today, another vision, we get to put on some apocalyptic glasses. We get to put on some spiritual spectacles. We we get a theological telescope that can pierce heaven itself this morning. We can see what's going on in the heavenly realm for a moment to see what God is up to. What God is up to in the closed doors, in the spiritual realm? What's going on? As we pray, as we gather, as we live our lives, it might look like we're losing. I mean, I, I, I read the news. The last five years, it sure looks like the church is losing. But the question is, maybe we need an apocalyptic message. Maybe we need an apocalyptic look. Behind the closed door of history, in order to really answer the question of are we in fact losing? Uh, Like I said, chapter 10, 11, and 12, it's one vision, but we are going to look at just chapter 10. So, chapter 10 is the sort of preamble, it's the context for this vision. Chapter 11 is the contents of this vision. And then, chapter 12 is kind of Partly it's the content and then it's kind of the conclusion of this vision and what this vision kind of all means. So today we're going to look at the context that this vision is given to Daniel in chapter 10. And I want to give you the big idea. The big idea is this. Though it may look like the church is losing, nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Turn with me to chapter 10. We're going to read all of it before We dive into it. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the banks of the great river that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms like the legs, like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, saw alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you sent your your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia and came to make you understand what is about to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, "O my Lord, by reason of the vision pains that have come upon me and I retain no strength, how can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me and he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael your prince." Daniel's been in Babylon for a long time. My guess is it felt like a lifetime. He's got to be about 85 years old at this point. And for seven years, he has been in Babylon. And here, we have these three visions that are going out to him. And this fourth vision comes in the third year of King Cyrus of Persia. And we see there in verse 1 that this vision... It deals with a great conflict. Not an earthly war. We're going to find out that this is a heavenly boxing match. Now, in the first year of King Cyrus, he makes this edict in 536 BC, this edict to allow God's people to return home and to rebuild Jerusalem and the altar and the sanctuary. And so now we're in the third year, two years after that edict went out. If you go to Ezra 1, it's sort of the companion to this. If you go to Ezra 1, we read that edict going out, and we read about this caravan, this, this great caravan going out from Babylon, well now Persia, and going out back to Jerusalem. And it's, it truly is amazing. We read there in Ezra 1 that 42,360 men, women, and children go home. With them, 2,000 male and female singers. 281 horses and mules. 435 camels. And check this out. 6,270 donkeys. God's people, I think, like the sorghum fries, just like their donkeys, right? I don't know. Now, don't, don't sort of miss the point, right? Just think about it. God's people, they go to Babylon with nothing. And look at all they have now. I mean, God prospered God's people even in exile, even in captivity. But Daniel doesn't go. When the edict goes and the great caravan goes out, Daniel doesn't go with them. Now, your guess is as good as mine. Maybe it's his age. I mean, 85 years old, traveling back to Jerusalem, that's, that's a hard travel. Or, or maybe he's thinking, I mean, he's got a great job, right? I mean, he's got an important job in the government. Maybe he's thinking, I would be more useful to God's people if I stayed here and worked in the government of Persia under the king. I, I don't know, but for whatever reason, he's there. And he, he in his initial excitement as God's people are going, he's hearing back in Persia, reports coming back about what's going on. And what started with initial excitement, well, begins with more and more disappointment as he realizes that rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the sanctuary is complicated. Ezra 4, we read this, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. There was a lot of pushback, a lot of trouble, Cyrus himself, the king, he's bankrolling this whole thing. And yet, they understand that mo' money, mo' problems, right? So eventually, word comes back to Daniel about this, and he's discouraged. And so we see here that in verse 3, or verse 2, in those days, Daniel, he's mourning. And he's mourning for three weeks. Verse 4 tells us that it's the 24th day of the first month, which is the, the season of Passover. And so it was tradition for the people of God to fast for seven days. But here, Daniel is fasting for two more weeks, for 21 days. He's fasting, mourning, not eating delicacies, not, not, not bathing. He's putting on funeral attire all because of what's going on in Jerusalem. And he is asking God, what's going on? Have you ever, have you ever just been going through something and it just doesn't make sense that the, the sort of calculus in your mind doesn't make sense and you inevitably turn your gaze to God and say, God, why? What, what, what are you doing? This doesn't make sense to me. I mean, we're 70 years and we're going back and you're supposed to rebuild. It's supposed to be this easy rebuilding process and yet it's difficult. And so Daniel is asking these sort of why questions and he's doing it as he's praying and mourning. He's asking God, why? Unveil your purpose, God. Explain to me why it is so hard for God's people back in Jerusalem. Well, after 21 days, Daniel... And some friends, they're hanging out at the river Tigris. And something incredible happens, doesn't it? A, a man clothed in linen comes. He's got a belt of gold. A body like barrel. That's a, like a yellow gemstone. He has face like lightning. Eyes like fire. Arms and legs that, that are made of bronze. Like have you ever seen uh, light hit copper. It's blinding. That, that's, that's the kind of imagery Going on here. And this man comes and and everything about it symbolically is pointing to, to how bright this man is. From his eyes, from even his mouth, everything about him is explaining how bright he is, how powerful he is, his authority, his holiness. Now there is some debate on who this character is, but I think it's clear that this is a heavenly being. This is an angel. And he comes. He comes to Daniel. And at this moment, their friends, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, um, you're walking somewhere, and you can't see anything, you don't hear anything, but you just, you just get goosebumps, and you get creeped out, and you're like, i got to get out of here. You ever experienced that? That, that? That's Daniel's friends. They, they don't see anything, they don't hear anything, but they just get the eebie-jeebies, and they're like, we're out. And so there's Daniel, alone. He alone sees this man. And he's weak. I mean, this description all the way through chapter 10, over and over again, is pointing out Daniel's weakness. He has little strength. He's terrified. Now, he's been fasting for 21 days, so that's part of it. But then he sees this man, this bright man, and he's terrified. He is, I think, in a metaphorical sense, he is scared to death. And then it says, and the, the language is that he, he, he falls into a deep sleep. Daniel sees this character and he faints. That's the imagery going on here. Then we get to verse 10. This heavenly being moves towards Daniel and he does something. He touches. Daniel has been touched by an angel, hasn't he? Because this angel needs Daniel to do something. He needs Daniel to see something. He needs Daniel to understand something. So he tells Daniel, get on your feet. Verse 11, Daniel greatly loved. Pay attention to the words that I am going to speak to you. Stand on your feet, for I have now been sent to you. So God sent this angel to Daniel. God heard the prayers of Daniel. Daniel. And this message is so important to Daniel, it's so important to God's people, it's so important to us that this angel needs to get Daniel's attention and says, stand alert, stand up, face me, I have to communicate something so that you can communicate it to God's people. And so Daniel stands up, but he's still described as his knees are shaking, his knees are knocking, but he's standing. The angel, and we see this theme repeated over and over again, reassures Daniel, it's okay. I'm not going to kill you. It's okay. Don't fear. And then the angel says something really interesting, doesn't he? He says, from the first day of your morning, from the first day of your fast, from the first day of your prayers, God heard you and sent an angel, dispatched an angel to come to you. Interesting. Now, why did it take this angel so long to get to Daniel? I mean, in this season, when I send some Christmas presents to Spokane, it, like, takes a week to get there. So, like, does it take 21 days for an angel to get from the, you know, the heavenly highway to Persia? Does it take 21 days? Like, is there, like, a traffic jam on the heavenly highway? Or did this angel get distracted? Does he have, like, heavenly ADD and, you know, whatever? Verse 13 tells us, doesn't it? But the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me, that's this angelic messenger, opposed me 21 days. So Michael, uh, the chief prince, came to help me. And I left him there with the prince of the kingdom of Persia and have come to help you understand what is to happen to your people in the end of days. So if you might remember, in these earlier visions, particularly chapter 7, the, there was this vision of these beasts rising from the sea. And all these beasts that are rising from the sea represent different kingdoms that are going to rise and fall. And so you've got uh, the first beast, which is like a lion, and that's Babylon, rising out of the sea. And then you've got this second beast, this, this beast that is a bear, and it's rising out of the sea, and that is Persia. Persia. Evidently, what we learned in chapter 7 is that God is sovereignly over all of these kingdoms. But here we learn that even behind these kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, behind them, these human kingdoms, are heavenly beings. Behind the affairs of man, behind the affairs of kingdoms, are angelic and demonic forces. Behind the events taking place in history, in real time, are spiritual realities going on. A spiritual battle between the army of Satan and the army of God. So here we get this glimpse, this great glimpse of something that none of us can see. That behind kingdoms, behind these things that are going on, you know, first Babylon, then Persia, then Greece is going to come, then Rome. Behind all of it are realities, spiritual realities, in which, well, demonic forces are in conflict with angelic forces. You see, at Daniel's prayer, prayer for understanding, prayer for an understanding of what God was doing in the midst of everything. An angel is dispatched, but what does the kind of the army of Satan do? It opposed that angelic being. Because it wants to discourage Daniel. And so Michael comes to its aid, and after a battle, finally, after 21 days, this angel arrives to Daniel to encourage him and explain what's going on. Do, do you see now why back in verse 1, Daniel talks about and says that this word that came to me, this vision, it was a great conflict or translation, a great war. That's what this vision is about. He sees in this vision a war, not just between kingdoms, physical kingdoms, earthly kingdoms, but a war in the heavenly realms between Satan and God. Now, that's not the only place in which the Bible frames this sort of reality. I mean, you go go to the New Testament in the book of Ephesians, and Paul writes this, for our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Or if you keep reading the New Testament in the book of Revelation, the, the corporate scripture reading that Phil read earlier, In chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, we we get this great cosmic war that's going on. And that Satan is at war with the church. Those who keep, verse 17 of chapter 12, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. You see, when Satan was thrown out of heaven, it began a war, a cosmic war. But see and I think we sometimes get this wrong, it's not like God and Satan are like yin and yang and they're on equal footings. Like, no, Satan is a created being. And so from the start, Satan knew, if I'm going to attack God, the best place, the most strategic place, is to attack his people. That's how the story in the Bible begins, doesn't it? Adam and Eve are there, and what does Satan do? He comes in the form of a serpent to tempt God's people to disobedience. Satan is hell-bent on deceiving the nations and deceiving and discouraging God's people. He was in Daniel, and he will be until his dying breath. Well, this heavenly messenger, the message finally comes. It's too important, so we read there in verse 14 that he has come to help Daniel to understand what is going to happen at the end of, of days. Now, what are these end of days? Well, I'm going to punt until in two weeks because that's what chapter 11 and 12 are about. We're going to see that later. Well, at this, Daniel is freaked out again. He's undone. He falls once again to his face in silence and a, a, a second time, and it's going to be three times total, the angel once again moves to him and he touches his lips now. Because Daniel needs to speak. He touches his lips, but Daniel says in verse 16 and 17, basically, you can look at it, he just once again explains, I'm weak. I have no power. Actually, he uses a phrase that is normally and almost always used to describe the pain of birthing a child. Now, I'm told a man should never describe his pain And describe it in a way that is similar to birthing a child. I tried it once. It didn't go well for me. But Daniel does. So let's give him a pass, all right? He describes he's in so much anguish, so much pain, that it's as if the wind has been knocked out of him. And so one final time, as as Daniel once again is kind of falling prostrate, the angel touches Daniel But here, notice, he's not told to stand. And this third time, he's not told to speak. Daniel's given something. Daniel's weak. Daniel's afraid. Daniel is feeling his frailties. He's terrified. And he needs something. He needs strength, doesn't he? Now, how does God turn... Weak Daniel. How does he turn terrified Daniel into strong, courageous Daniel in one of those dare-to-be-Daniel moments? Like, how does that happen? Look there at verse 19. O oh man, the angel speaks. God speaks through the mouth of this angel. Verse 19, O oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong, and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. How are God's people strengthened? How is Daniel strengthened? Through God's word. Isn't that just wonderful? God strengthens his people through his word or we could put it this way, God builds up his church through his word. If you're feeling weak, spiritually speaking, how are you strong? How do you go from spiritually weak to spiritually strong? The answer, God's word. Strength comes through the word of God. And notice just how lovely this is. He says, you are greatly loved. Twice the angel tells him about his identity as loved. I mean, we all live these lives and we wonder, well, maybe God loves me like he has to love me, but maybe he doesn't like us. And we all neglect and forget. We all have sort of spiritual dementia where we forget who we are. And so we need God's word to come to us and to whisper and to sometimes shout to us, this is who you are. Be strengthened in the identity that you have in Christ Jesus. And that's Daniel. When the word comes to him, he is at that moment strengthened. Then verse 20. The angel asks this rhetorical question. Do you know I have come? Now, Daniel has already been told the answer to the question, why the angel came earlier. The angel came because Daniel prayed. Daniel mourned, he prayed, he fasted, and at that, instantly in the heavenly realm, an angel was dispatched. So this rhetorical question that the angel asked, like, do do you know why I have come? Daniel's answer should be, yes, you told me, you came because I prayed. Now, I I think sometimes when we think of prayer, we think, I mean, I just keep knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. You know, I, I just keep praying. I keep asking for this. I keep asking for healing. I keep asking for provisions. I keep praying for my spouse. I keep praying for this besetting sin. I keep praying that God would answer this or that God would give me wisdom. I keep praying and I hear nothing. I hear silence. I don't see heaven moving at all. And so we get discouraged, and we think prayer is just, at least our world would say this, and I think we all have this temptation, we think prayer is just, you know, the, the last-ditch effort of a loser who doesn't know what else to do. And so we can get discouraged. I mean, the Bible tells us to keep on praying, and yet we keep on praying, and when we don't see or experience God's answers to prayer, we become Discouraged. My guess is Day fourteen, day fifteen, day sixteen, Daniel's getting kind of discouraged. He's hearing nothing. No answer. In his morning and his praying, he's getting pretty desperate. And yet, one thing he didn't see is that his prayers affected the heavenly realm. His prayers were doing something. His prayers were, in effect, well, were affecting a heavenly war, weren't they? We think that life is maybe about comfort or peace, but in one sense, if you didn't realize this, the Bible talks about the Christian life as one of a battle. It's one of war. And one of the principal things that we have, the principal tool or weapon we have in our battle is prayer. Prayer is many things, but one of the things prayer is, prayer is an attack against the spiritual demonic forces of this world. Paul puts it this way. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He talks about his life and the discouragement, the discontentment, the thorn in his side. And he frames that as if he's in a fight, a fight for joy, a fight fight to stay faithful to Jesus. He's like, I'm in a fight. And he says, I fought the good fight. He uses this metaphor often in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, I do not run aimlessly. And then he says this, I do not box as one beating the air. Meaning, I'm not just throwing punches and it's not affecting anything. No, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest any preach, lest after preaching to others, I myself be disqualified. In other words, one of Paul's fears was that he would preach the gospel, but that he and his life, and his morality, and his sin, his life would disqualify him for the very message that he was preaching. And so he said, "I take my own holiness, my own." Christ-likeness, very, very serious because the battle for his heart, the battle for his soul, the battle against sin was a serious battle. I mean, right after that, uh, that uh, quote that I read earlier in Ephesians about the, the battle against the heavenly realms, right after that, you get Paul describing how we battle them and he talks about the armor of God. Prayer is many things. One aspect of prayer that we find here is that prayer is a spiritual punch in the schemes of Satan in the heavenly realms. Well, the angel, the angel explains one final thing to Daniel in verse 20 and 21. The angel says, basically, I don't have a lot of time. I'm going to give you this vision, but I got to get going because I still got to fight the prince of Persia. Remember all these visions, right? You've got... Babylon would rise and fall. Then Persia would rise and fall. Then Greece would rise and fall. Then Rome would rise and fall. Kingdoms would rise and fall. And behind all this, he's saying, is this battle going on? And he says, I got to get back. I got to fight Persia. And then after that, the prince of Greece is going to come. And we're going to fight him. But in all this, in all these realities, you need to step back and be like, why? Why does Daniel need to know this? That behind the sort of apocalyptic curtain, behind the realm of the physical into the spiritual, the heavenly realm, why does Daniel need to understand that there was a battle going on? Daniel thinks he's losing, doesn't he? He thinks God's people are losing. And when we look around this world, we can relate to Daniel. There are times in which it just feels like we're losing. In little ways and in big ways. In cultural ways and in personal ways. Whether that's the sin in our life, whether that's broken down relationships, whether that's cultural, it can look like we're losing and that God, in one sense, is on the wrong side of history. And so here Daniel gets this vision of Michael and this angel beating the prince of Persia. And that Greece is going to come, they're going to beat him too. That behind all these nations, behind all these schemes, God's team wins. And there is this, this wonderful irony, which is what looks like losing in earthly terms. When you put on glasses like I have, and you just look out in the world, it looks like losing, but there's this subtle gospel irony going on that what looks like losing is in fact behind closed doors god's calculus for winning it looked like babylon had beaten god's people didn't it it would look like persia had beaten god's people when greece comes and all of the shenanigans that come play come it looks like greece has defeated god's people and then rome comes Oh, it sure looks like Rome had defeated God's people. Herod comes on the scene. Sure looks like Herod's going to defeat the messianic seed when he tries to take out all of the male children. And then you've got Satan himself. It looks like Satan is going to win. It looks like Judas is going to defeat Jesus when he deceives Jesus and betrays Jesus. It looks like Pilate wins. I mean, just think of all the people that it looks like They have won. And yet, there is a reverse, isn't it? Even when Jesus dies on a cross, it looks like from an earthly perspective that God's people once and for all have finally lost. And yet, Colossians 2 reminds us of this, that Christ has disarmed the ruler's and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So Satan, the demonic forces, they think they've got Jesus. They think they've shamed Jesus. When Jesus is stripped and mocked, shamed publicly, when he, you know, they they, they shamefully put, this is the king of the Jews. They think they've mocked Jesus. They think they've disarmed god's son they think they finally shamed jesus to the extent that they've won and here's the lovely irony of heaven that by his death jesus had shamed them jesus had robbed the principalities the heavenly realm jesus by his own death shames satan Satan, all the way, says, I have this kingdom, this kingdom of darkness, and I have all these subjects. And Jesus, by his death, robs Satan of his citizens and takes them and transfers them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus takes what looks like shame and he turns it into triumph. That's what Jesus is doing. And that's what Daniel is seeing. What looks like losing to him is, in fact, when you look from heaven's perspective, it's winning. Sometimes losing is in fact winning. Just ask Jesus, who won by dying. Just ask George Foreman. 1974, Ollie's in trouble. He's hanging on the rope, and round after round after round, It looks like Muhammad Ali is going to lose. But Foreman didn't know that every punch that George Foreman hit, because he was holding on to and leaning his weight on the rope, it was transferring some of that energy of the punch into the ropes. He was tiring out George Foreman. You see, Ali knew he couldn't go toe-to-toe with Foreman. He couldn't go punch-to-punch. So he had to tire him out. And that's what he did for seven rounds. He tired out George Foreman. And then the eighth round comes and all he knows, Foreman's tired and he comes up and he has this epic, epic eighth round. Five punch combination, left hook, and finally a right jab to the chin and Foreman goes down. All along for seven rounds, it looks like George Foreman is winning. It looks like Ali is losing, but Ali had a secret. He had a plan. He was playing the long game. He was strategizing. His whole team had known what was going on. The classic rope-a-dope as what we call it now. Ali won, even though it looked like he was losing. Looks can be deceiving. I don't know if you are reading various books or articles or newspapers, but it sure looks like there are lots of prophets out in the world who are all crying that the church is losing. Some of them are saying that the church has lost. I think we need an apocalyptic vision to remind us that the church can't lose. The church won't lose. That the angelic, hosts that have aligned themselves with satan those demons and satan himself they can discourage they can do harm i'm not denying that they are behind a lot of a lot of compromise and a lot of shenanigans and yet at the same time they cannot win as martin luther would say in his commentary to the book of job when you think of satan standing in the heavenly realm at the end of the day, Satan still has to ask God what he can do to Job because Satan is still God's Satan. There's a lot going on. It might look like we're losing. It might look like we were taking a step back, but sometimes, sometimes you have to advance to the rear in order to militarily advance and win and have victory. We've won. When Christ was on his when he was ministering, when he was talking about his crucifixion, he says, I've seen Satan fall. Satan has fallen. In Christ, we've won. The battle still rages on, and yet, in Christ, we won. So, let me just encourage us in closing. Keep praying keep knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Know that your prayers actually do things. And maybe, and often, if your prayers are anything like mine, sometimes God says no. But that's God still answering, isn't it? Because God has a great purpose for his church, a great end. He is sovereign over kings and kingdoms and even over the demonic forces that wield their influence in those places. And your prayers, they do things. They affect things. At the prayer of Daniel, an angel was dispatched. What can our prayers accomplish? As we pray for this area, as we pray that that the gospel would go forth, that the kingdom would come here in Puyallup and Bonnie Lake and Tacoma and Graham and Spanaway, Ording, as we pray that this would happen, we are on the winning side. We are on the winning side. And Daniel, in his mourning, in his wondering what's going on, he gets to understand for a moment, as the apocalyptic curtain is drawn back, he gets to see that at the end of the day, God's people will win. Even the demonic forces can't touch the de- heavenly forces. That God has dispatched. So be encouraged. At the end of the day. Even if it looks like temporarily we're losing. Or even if it looks like you're losing. A a battle with your sin for a moment. If you are in Christ. In the end. You win. So if you need strength. Find strength. The way Daniel found strength. Read God's word. Pray God's word. Hear God's word. Study God's word. It is the means of building us up, strengthening us in this life as we battle our sin until Christ calls us home. Let's pray. God, we... um, we, We know that there are many trials. There are many hardships. There are many potholes in this world and so we thank you for your world for your word to to come and shape our worldview and we thank you lord that we can remind ourselves in small ways and big ways that even if it looks like we're failing and we're weak small and insignificant in your eyes we are greatly loved you have a purpose for us lord you are building your kingdom and the gates of hell cannot overtake her. So give us confidence, Lord, to keep on preaching your word, praying in light of your word, making disciples. Lord, you are bringing your kingdom. And we pray that you would, you would bring all things under your son's reign when he comes. We, we pray that you would hasten his coming. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.